Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week. Mike Jackson used to shovel horse manure for $1 a stall. He wound up leading a company selling over half a million new and used cars and trucks a year in America. In March, Jackson stepped aside from the position he has held for 20 years, CEO of AutoNation. It's one of South Florida's largest publicly traded companies, worth almost $3.5 billion. And Florida is its most important state. A quarter of its revenues come from auto dealers it owns here. But for Jackson, his working days began with a speech from his father. Jackson is from a big Irish Catholic family in Philadelphia. He says his dad sat him down, told him that work would define him. He needed to get an education, and he better get to work to make money to pay for school. I was 10 years old when I got this speech, and I started as a stable boy the following week. He remembers his first day and that first stall. A mountain of horse manure is how he describes it. And it can either take me all day to do one stall and get a dollar, or I can get on with shoveling the horse manure and get $20. So I embraced it and uh, uh, got it all done. And a great lesson in life that whenever you're confronted with a massive pile of horse manure, just start shoveling. You will get to the other side. Jackson led AutoNation for 20 years. He remains involved in the business today. He's executive chairman of the board, a position he will fill for the next two years as new CEO Carl Leiber takes over. Leiber was the number two person at USAA, a financial services firm for the military and veterans. During Jackson's tenure as AutoNation CEO, he transformed the company from its Fort Lauderdale headquarters into a single national auto dealer brand, remade its used car business, and has become the voice of the auto industry. Jackson is outspoken. When AutoNation's new CEO was announced earlier this year, Jackson criticized the Tesla CEO, Elon Musk, for, quote, overpromising on autonomous vehicles. When Jackson first announced he would be resigning as the boss, trade publication Automotive News wondered, who will do the talking for American car dealers? He's not shy about sharing his opinion on issues far beyond the showroom floor, from trade policy and immigration, the staying power of gasoline engines, and finding enough qualified mechanics to repair 21st century cars and trucks. We talked about all these issues recently in his AutoNation office in Fort Lauderdale. But when I asked him to reflect on 20 years as a CEO of a major publicly traded company, a long tenure by corporate America's standards, he was uncharacteristically stumped for a moment. To what do you owe that success, that longevity, do you think? I haven't really thought about what I owe it uh, to my success. What do you credit? I credit my parents. I had great parents. He calls his parents classic Tom Brokaw, greatest generation parents. They met in 1940 working at the same company. My mother was attracted to my father. He was paying no attention. She was in charge of payroll. So she stopped paying him. When his dad didn't get his paycheck, that got his attention. And his future wife had a proposal. So he came and said, hey, I'm not getting paid. And she says, well, you came to the right person. If you take me to dinner, I'll straighten out your pay. Jackson has a smile on his face as he tells this story. It's a story he likely heard lots of times from his family and a story he has shared with many others since. So the people who had become his parents went on that first date. He brings her home at 1 o'clock in the morning, big Irish Catholic family. My mother's mother's up saying, this is unacceptable. And my mother Kay goes, pay no mind. He's the love of my life. We're going to get married and spend the rest of our life together. They were engaged to be married when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Jackson says his dad enlisted in the Navy on December 8th, 1941, and left for flight school in Pensacola. My grandmother says, you know, you should wait till after the war. And my mother says, no, I'm marrying him. And my grandma says, you don't know if he's coming back or what's coming back. 
My mother says, no, I'm marrying him. So on the runway, when he was pinned with his wings by his father, who was a captain on a Navy ship in the Pacific, came home to do it, he also performed the wedding ceremony on the runway in Pensacola. Yeah, she, she, she was a force to be reckoned with. Do you think you inherited uh, your mom's negotiating skills? <laughs> Mike Jackson will remain a fixture of the South Florida business community as AutoNation finds itself as an economic bellwether of sorts, selling and repairing cars and trucks, hoping to evolve as consumers' tastes in mobility change. The fact is that I've been working at least one, two, or three jobs for 60 straight years. Since the first pile of horse manure, I've never stopped and now I'm 70, so I'm not stopping, but I should balance things a little bit. But don't think that balance means Mike Jackson is slowing down or quieting down. Still to come in our conversation, the business of selling and fixing cars and trucks and the road ahead for the American economy. Everything is not as uh, strong as some of these numbers would indicate, and I, I'm cautious on the economy in 2019. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting Public Radio. You can catch a podcast of this program if you missed any of it or all of our programs on iTunes. Just search the term Sunshine Economy. In the years that Mike Jackson was CEO at the country's largest auto dealer, AutoNation, the American economy experienced two recessions. There was a relatively short and shallow recession in 2001, and then, of course, the Great Recession a decade ago. The Great Recession threatened to bring down the American automaking industry. New car sales fell almost 50 percent in just a single year. Jackson has credited his work diversifying the types of cars and trucks sold by AutoNation and where AutoNation sold them, for helping the company weather the tough economic times. Instead of concentrating on American-made vehicles, only about a third of new vehicles sold by AutoNation today are from U.S. makers. Almost half are imports. Last year, sales were flat, while profits dropped 9%. In its annual report, it called 2008, quote, a plateauing sales environment. Jackson is cautious about the American economy this year and what that will mean for auto sales. The economy is in reasonably good shape, and uh, growth won't be as strong in 19 as it was in 18. You had the strong fiscal stimulus last year. For the industry, uh, auto new vehicle sales will be challenged. The consumer likes truck-based vehicles that can be SUVs to pick up trucks, which have a higher price point. And interest rates are higher than the last time they were in the marketplace. You, you combine those two factors, and it's leading to a price point uh, that the consumer is not happy with. And they are looking at alternatives, most likely something nearly new or pre-owned. But what that means for the economy ultimately is that the plants will have to slow down, and um, that then impacts the overall economy, and that's a challenging environment. Uh, for us to be in. So new retail sales for the industry down 6-7%. Now we as a company, AutoNation, are well prepared to deal with the challenges. Uh, we're the only one with a coast-to-coast -coast brand. We have scale. We have our brand extension into exciting new business fields. 
So all that's underway. But the headwinds will certainly be here in 2019 for the auto industry. As you look at the business of AutoNation, what does it tell you about the overall economy? You talked a little bit about some of the specific headwinds when it comes to the auto buying consumer, but what about more broadly speaking? I think the message is uh, be careful. So uh, as you know, Tom, I was on the Federal Reserve for the past eight years, and, and in 2018 I was chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank for Atlanta, responsible for the South. East and, I, and my message was quite clear that why uh, the headline numbers would, would appear to say the economy is strong, um, you're going to see weakness in 2019, and, and that has happened. And uh, you see it in any significant purchase, whether it's housing, automobiles, or durable goods that have a longer-term view uh, consumers are nervous about the long term. They're nervous about the level of uncertainty and the level of volatility in the rhetoric that comes out of Washington, D.C. today. You then combine that with higher price points in both housing and auto and higher interest rates. And so the debate within the Federal Reserve is, look, Mike, rates are, from a historical perspective, extremely low. And I say, well, I got news for you. The American consumers are not historians. They don't know who Paul Volcker is or was. Paul Volcker was the chairman of the Federal Reserve in the 1980s. He is credited with successfully fighting the high inflation of the 1970s with high interest rates and helping set the stage for the booming economy of the 80s. For the past decade, borrowing rates, though, have been historically low. They have been creeping up recently, though. They've been used to basically free money since 2008, and now, now money, you have to pay for it again. And there's going to be an adjustment period in their behavior. So... Um, I'm cautious on the on the economy in 2019. I think it'll be reasonably good growth, somewhere between two and a half and three percent, something like that. Job market meantime for the unemployment numbers very very low. That's good for auto sales. Folks need jobs to be able to afford those cars. We're beginning to see some wage increases in the overall numbers, but here in South Florida at least, and here in the Southern region. You continue to see that median income to be less than the national number. Are you concerned about those kinds of headwinds as it relates to employment and wages? Well, um, I, I think we have a challenge in the U.S. economy in that the workforce participation, the number of uh, individuals who are in their prime working ages that are not, are not participating in the workforce, that are sitting on the sidelines, uh, is... Uh, concerningly high. So ironically, you can have a very low unemployment rate if you don't count the people who have left the workforce. The makeup of how the Department yeah. of Labor yeah. if you're not figures those for numbers. A job, you're, if you're not looking, actively looking for a job, then you're not unemployed. Well, I don't know about the logic of that. So you have to be careful with this low unemployment number, which is great and everything, meaning that of those who want to work, uh, they can find a job. I think America has a challenge in the number of people who have decided um, not to participate uh, in the workforce. So again, everything is not as uh, strong as some of these numbers would indicate, and I'm cautious on the economy in 2019. Cautious on the auto business, too. You've talked about how the uh, auto industry is entering a period of gradual decline, you've called it. Yeah, well... Um, we've had a great run, 
And But now the industry faces a higher price point, which is a consumer choice, and higher interest rates, and that leads to a higher payment that uh, is averaging now like 550 a month, which is... Um, That's for a new car? For a new car, and the consumer doesn't want to go much beyond that. So I, I think you'll see industry sales for new vehicles at retail um, decline mm, 5, 6, 7% this year, something That's like that. That's a meaningful drop. Yeah, well... I, I think there, there is a gravity uh, to business, and um, higher prices with higher interest rates will lead to lower sales. Not accompanied with higher wages, higher income. There is some higher wages, and, and, and for the first time, wages are starting to move. But um, those are headwinds that are difficult to overcome for an industry. That's AutoNation Executive Chairman Mike Jackson. Last year, while most of the company's revenues came from new vehicle sales, its parts and repair business was responsible for a bigger portion of its profits. Still to come as our conversation continues, the international trade war and the auto business. Automobile tariffs will make steel and aluminum look like a picnic and will be extremely disruptive to the U.S. economy, very expensive for the U.S. consumer, and um, could bring on a recession. This is the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting WLRN. By the middle of May, President Trump is expected to make his decision on whether or not to slap new tariffs of up to 25 percent on foreign-made cars and car parts. It would open a new front on the international trade war over import taxes, especially with Europe and Japan. A Commerce Department report on the auto tariffs was completed in February. It was called a Section 232 investigation. It gets that name from a 1962 law and is designed to determine the effect of foreign imports on U.S. national security. The president already has used this section to put taxes on imported steel and aluminum, key ingredients in American-made cars, trucks, and SUVs. Auto dealers like AutoNation see the effect these tariffs have on car prices, and Executive Chairman Mike Jackson worries about the economic impact if the president goes forward with more taxes on imports. It's very uh, uncertain and uh, disrupted, and it is having an impact on the global economy. You know, our unique economy, it, based on free enterprise and enlightened immigration policy uh, and free trade and the rule of law, has served us well. We've built the mightiest economy in the world. And now you turn to trade, you say, okay, the situation with China is a legitimate issue and should be addressed. And um, I understand that. NAFTA, I think, is an agreement that has basically worked for North America. I think it's in the best interest uh, from our own national security that we have a strong, vibrant, integrated economy in North America, that we're all living as good neighbors. Uh, certainly the agreement could be updated, but... Um, Maybe the amount of rhetoric that went around it is was not useful. Uh, and then you have the whole trade uh, debate with Europe, particularly around tariffs on vehicles, which, again, is hard to understand on its merits, but 
I have to say, in, in watching the rhetoric from this administration around trade, facts have never really been that important. It's, it's been more an emotional outcry. Uh, the consequences of this are, though, that uh, the uh, global auto supply chain is extremely complex with lead times of 10, 20, 30 years. It's uh, uh, not something that can be switched around from one day to the next by any means. And uncertainty around tariffs and trades has made it um, extremely uh, uh, difficult. And it's, and it's been uh, disruptive and, and investment is slowing as um, it's, it, everyone tries to figure it out. So if you take the steel and aluminum tariffs, the input costs for the manufacturers have gone up substantially because the domestic producers raise prices. So uh, that is goes back then to the cost issues I talked before. They, they have to be passed through the consumer. The consumer ultimately pays these costs. And then if we get tariffs on vehicles on top of that, it'll make the steel and aluminum tariffs look like a picnic. Have you seen this tariff uh, issue uh, already show up on your showroom floors for consumers and for your business? Well, in the sense that it's um, in the pricing of the vehicles uh, and uh, the manufacturers are at their limits of, of what they can absorb from the steel and aluminum tariffs, it's going to be passed through in price increases, and some of that has come, and there's more uh, to be done. And the whole planning for the industry has been disruptive with um, everyone not really understanding what the rules of the road are going to be. So you sort of have to say, well, let me wait and see. One of those rules may change as we're talking now. As you know, the Commerce Department has handed in a report regarding uh, European auto imports, uh, potentially putting an uh, import tax on them to come into the United States for national security reasons. AutoNation is in the uh, auto importing business in terms of reselling those uh, European auto imports. Uh, how are you looking at this as the administration considers whether or not to put a tax on European auto imports into the U.S.? So the first um, thing I would have to say is this statement that the current state of the U.S. automobile industry is so rickety that it's a threat to the national security of the United States is absolutely ludicrous. The U.S. auto industry is as healthy and as vibrant as it has ever been in its entire history. In 08 and 09, it addressed some of the major systemic issues they had to. They restructured, the industry reinvented itself, and today, uh, almost 12 million vehicles are produced in the United States, uh, and the profitability for the manufacturers in the United States is the highest ever. So you reject history. the whole basis the of the whole. Commerce Department that European imports somehow are a threat to the national security. The, the, the whole thing is ludicrous. And Angela Merkel said it best. You, you, the Chancellor you, of Germany. Chancellor of Germany. That you, you mean to tell me this BMW is a, is a threat to the security of the United States? It's ludicrous. So that's step one. Step two, since we mentioned BMW, what I look at is, okay, uh, BMW has its largest plant in the world in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, produces over 450,000 vehicles 
a year there, 300,000 of which are exported from the United States to around the world, with the number one export market being China. And there is a hundreds uh, of suppliers that have been built up around that plant, and it gave confidence to Mercedes-Benz and Volkswagen to also build plants. And it's been a, an industrial revolution of uh, gigantic proportions as a positive for the entire Southeast United States. So what have they done wrong exactly? They export from the United States more than they input. And you want to punish them? It becomes a trade surplus. It's, they're running a trade surplus. So what more do you want from a corporate citizen than that? So, in my opinion, the basic premise is ludicrous. And uh, the facts are that a company like BMW is a net exporter from the United States. So you want to punish one a company for having become a net exporter? And oh, by the way, the Europeans offered on automobiles to go tariff-free. You notice that got stone silence from the White House because the dirty little secret is the United States has one of the highest tariffs on light-duty trucks in the world, 25%. These are light-duty trucks imported into the United States. Imported into the United States. So the United States is a highly protected market for light-duty trucks, which so... Europe called the bluff and said, let's go tariff-free, and the United States blinked because they don't want to give up their tariffs. Okay, so again, it, it's enough to give you a headache watching the whole thing, and uh, uh, I expect there to be a lot of brinksmanship, a lot of drama, a lot of, uh, uh, yeah, excitement, but at the end of the day, I don't think it happens. You don't think that the president will slap the import tax on the European autos? I do not. And why not? Yeah. Well, you notice they didn't release the report that's supposed to make the case that they have the power to do this. This was the Commerce Department the Commerce report. Department did not become public. Did not become public. Uh, so, again, I think, I think the foundation for their claim is rickety, and uh, the— uh, situation with the Europeans are they've all invested in the United States and they're all producing in the United States and and the and the imbalance in total is is relatively small so I don't think it happens and but if it if it does uh, it'll automobile tariffs will make steel and aluminum look like a picnic and will be extremely disruptive to the US economy very expensive for the US consumer and um, could bring on a recession that could be the trigger, you think? Could be the trigger. Meantime, we're waiting for the congressional debate over the new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, the replacement of NAFTA. That open debate has not begun yet in order for uh, Congress to uh, take a vote on this trade treaty. Uh, but the new changes to that trade uh, push the requirements for North American content for vehicles uh, to 40% of the value. What's the potential impact, as you understand, the U.S. MCA as it stands today as it relates to the auto industry and its impact? I think it's a good update that the industry can live with. Um, and there's enough lead time for the industry to adapt to the new standards. 
which include both uh, U.S. content and how much of the content can come from low-wage markets. Yeah, worker pay. Yeah, worker pay. Yeah. But there's a, there's like a five-year phase in. So, for you see those changes as more gradual more than the gradual. European import tax. They're entirely reasonable uh, in the in the total debate and an appropriate step to keep the agreement, the total agreement of NAFTA in place. And so the industry understands, the industry supports, and uh, the industry hopes that the uh, new trade agreement is approved. So how do you understand as a uh, auto industry executive on the retail side, uh, uh, but as a very successful corporate uh, boss, uh, uh, the difference between those two trade tactics from the administration? Well, listen, I'm not in the administration. I'm not in the White House. As I said before, I think uh, taking on the trade situation with China was entirely appropriate, and you should use every tool and every means to try to get to a, a better agreement uh, than what's been going on for the last 20, 30 years. To disrupt the entire trade issue around the world at the same time, taking on our neighbors to the north and the south and taking on our, our friends in Europe at the same time, mm, I wouldn't have done that. I think it's too much. You know, if you want this strong, vibrant economy that the administration talks about, of uh, uh, they talk about growth of uh, plus 3%, 4%, sometimes, some days they're saying 5%. You can't get there without free trade and without an enlightened immigration policy that's uh, supportive of the economy. And I don't see where the administration has uh, understood that, and therefore I think they will fail in their goal of achieving 4 to 5% economic growth. Certainly tough to achieve that goal with the worker participation rate that you referred to yeah. earlier, 63 64% of the employable population actually deciding to be in the job market. Yeah. So it's very if you want that level of growth, then you need a strategy to have workers to support it. You can only get so much on the productivity side per year, you know, 2% max, maybe 1%, something like that, but 1% to 2%, and then you need more workers. So you need a, a strategy either to attract millions of workers back into the workforce or have an immigration policy that supports millions of talented people who are looking for work to come to the United States. And I don't see either of those happening. Speaking with AutoNation Executive Chairman Mike Jackson recently in his Fort Lauderdale office, about half of the new cars and trucks the company sold last year were imports led by Toyotas and Hondas. According to Reuters, Toyota estimates that if President Trump approves a 25% tax on foreign autos and auto parts, it would raise the price of a Toyota Camry by about $1,800. Still to come, the struggle to find workers to fix 21st century cars and trucks. There is a skills gap that is both emotional and intellectual. We're back on the Sunshine Economy today on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. As always, thanks for listening. In March, almost 150,000 people in Florida worked in the auto, 
or auto parts retail industry. That's about the same number as worked in those businesses a year earlier, even though more than 200,000 new jobs were created overall by Florida companies over the same time period. Unemployment is near historic lows. In South Florida, unemployment stood at 3.3 percent last month. Nationwide, there are more job openings than there are officially unemployed people. That has helped pick up wages a little bit. Average weekly pay is up over 3% from a year ago nationally. About a third of the people working in the auto and auto parts retail industry in Florida are mechanics. Their average pay was up 1.6% last year, according to state data. The average mechanic's hourly salary in Broward County, though, rose much faster, up more than 4%. This data highlights the difficulty companies are experiencing in filling jobs and the pressure they are under to raise pay to attract and retain qualified workers. AutoNation Executive Chairman Mike Jackson knows this, and he looks to schools to help keep American workers interested and competitive. Education uh, is, is the challenge for America's society, and in, and in particular the Southeast. So if... If you look at where all these technologies are moving, you pick the endeavor. Uh, technology is, is uh, transformational, and it is obsoleting many jobs, obsoleting many skills, and the only way you're going to be able to reinvent yourself to, to be able to work and make a contribution and have that sense of purpose is through education. And I'm not sure our education system is up to the challenge of what's coming at us. That is a challenge. What do you see as the shortcomings? There is a skills gap. There is a skills gap that is uh, uh, both emotional and intellectual. The emotional skill gap is I see a certain disdain for uh, certain types of work. Such as? Uh, such as um, uh, anything on the, the technical side, anything where you have to work with a combination of your hands and your brains. Um, there's, there's just not the respect for those positions that there are in other societies that I see in the world. It's like, you know, you should be an English major rather than uh, have a technical background in, in, in certain skills. So there, there's an, a, a cultural, emotional. So uh, if I look at a society like Germany, I see in the education system uh, puts, an, puts a very high value on uh, individuals with those skill sets and, and companies already partner with individuals while they're still in high school. And when they graduate from high school, they're immediately, they've, they've already spent time working for companies on the, on, in highly skilled technical uh, professions. Um, so that's a, that's a system that really works. It's kind of what we used to call the vocational side yeah. of education, the trade school side of education. Do yeah, you s- we almost need a new word for it, and uh, it needs to be reinvented. So those are, that's, that's a challenge I see for American society going forward. Uh, and, and the skills gap is going to get uh, larger because in each step, uh, the complexity and the level of skill you need is a bit higher than it was before. And we're falling behind. 
Is AutoNation experiencing this in real time with the kind of demands that it has in the marketplace for the types of labor that's available? Yes, we have 7,000 technicians uh, working every day, uh, caring for and maintaining extremely complex vehicles and safety systems that have to be all in uh, perfect order when we put the vehicle back on the road and uh, developing and attracting the, the, the individuals for these extremely well-paying jobs is a challenge. So how are you addressing the skills gap? What role do companies like AutoNation play in, that, in, in facing that challenge and meeting that challenge? Uh, we're, we have started discussions with the uh, U.S. military and um, our new CEO, which comes from a Navy background uh, and was with USAA before joining us, uh, sees the opportunity there, the same as I do, and I think we're going to do much more. In that, um, you have individuals who are very successful, have discipline, have ambition, and have technical skill sets that they learned in their service to the country, that with a, a bridge investment, those skills can then be translated. Uh, into today's workforce, and so we're going to we're, we're we're going to absolutely invest in those efforts. Are you seeing the kind of public investment in those efforts? Uh, the new governor of Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis, has talked about uh, a focus on vocational training. Uh, we've we've heard that as well coming out of the federal government, for instance, to try to address some of yeah. the skills gap. Good talk, good discussions. Let's go. <laughs> you ready for action? Yeah. Well, the challenge is bigger than everybody thinks, and it's getting larger every day. And is the United States unique in this skills gap? I mean, you mentioned Germany as a place that has addressed it, but are there other places to draw lessons from for the United States here? I think we may lead the world in this um, emotional this combination of both the emotional uh, gap and the actual skill gap. What do you it really think, concerns me. Yeah, what do you think contributes to that ongoing emotional skills gap that you talk about? This somehow we, we've, as a culture, maybe devalued working with our hands and brains, as you said. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm not... I'm the former stable boy here. Yeah, I'm not sure I can fully explain it, but I can sure see it clear as day. And um, it's a challenge. Speaking with Mike Jackson, the executive chairman of AutoNation, based in Fort Lauderdale. Still to come, the future of the auto business is electric, but certainly not only electric. There's going to be a revolution in mobility for AutoNation we're going to be the biggest retailer of electric vehicles in the United States, ultimately. That's the goal. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. There have been several efforts to revolutionize car buying through the years. In the early 1990s, General Motors started its Saturn brand. Remember that? Cars were sold at their sticker prices. No haggling. CarMax did the same for used cars. Most car shopping today includes some kind of online shopping, but still includes walking into the showroom. As the country's largest auto retailer, AutoNation has been investing in e-commerce. Last year, it spent $50 million to buy a 7% stake in online car retailer Vroom. 
That was followed a month later by a partnership with FAIR. FAIR is part of a new breed of companies offering automobile subscriptions. These are somewhere between a car rental lasting a few days or a few weeks and a three-year lease. A monthly fee pays for the car, maintenance, and maybe insurance. The partnership allows users of FAIR to have access to some cars at AutoNation dealers. Then there is the repair business, the most profitable part of AutoNation's business. If the future of driving does not require owning a vehicle or even driving one thanks to autonomous technology, how is that going to change the auto repair business? In 2017, AutoNation struck a deal with Waymo, the self-driving technology branch of Google's parent company. Waymo tests the technology. AutoNation maintains the cars to keep them in driving condition. None of these deals are expected to add meaningfully to AutoNation's bottom line anytime soon. But they represent some of the last strategic deals by Mike Jackson before he resigned as CEO to become executive chairman. We spoke with him recently in his Fort Lauderdale office about the future of automobiles and selling autos. What is driving this kind of innovation for AutoNation in the car retail business? Well, I think we're at a very exciting point for the auto industry. There is more change coming in the next 10 years than we had in the last 100 years. And it's you, you have a number of technologies that are at inflection points that feed off of each other and build off of each other. First is electrification. The industry has pivoted to electrification and are investing almost $300 billion in all electric products that are going to be coming to the marketplace in 2020, 2021, 2022. So um, the inflection point for electrification has arrived. Is the consumer driving that inflection point as much mm, as regulations, no. perhaps? No. It's, it's, it's a combination. The first driver is regulation. And uh, that's by regulators in the three major markets of the world, uh, China, Europe, and the United States. Uh, And then costs have become thinkable. It's not uh, still yet comparable to internal combustion engine, but there is a sight line to profitability within five years and a equivalency within 10 years. So that's very exciting. So electrification. Uh, Then you combine that with uh, autonomous, there's really two types of autonomous system where the driver has to be supervising and alert every moment. That's like the systems in Tesla's. Uh, and then there's true autonomy like the systems in Waymo. And there is a dramatic difference in cost and complexity between those two. But um, they're coming and those true autonomous almost requires it to be an electric vehicle because of the amount of energy that is consumed to run all the sensors and all the computers. Uh, and then you have people showing a willingness to share vehicles in companies like Uber and Lyft. And then you have uh, connected vehicles, that the vehicles are going to be able to talk to each other, be updated um, over the air, um, and interact with each other. You, so you put all four of those either technologies or concepts together, and there's going to be a revolution in mobility. So for AutoNation, we have the scale to take positions in those new fields. Uh, We're going to be the biggest retailer of electric vehicles in the United States, ultimately. That's the goal. And um, so all that's exciting. So we're involved in all those fields, and we intend to grow with them. 
And talk to about the consumer demand piece of that. As you mentioned, it's the regulators in those three big markets, the EU, China, and the United States, that has helped drive electrification. But what about the consumer attitudes toward it and the consumer appetite for it? What are you experiencing? It's The, the, the demand is uh, mainly with advocates at the moment. Uh, so you're in low single digits as far as the marketplace. And... Uh, the number one concern is range of the vehicle and then uh, how long it takes to recharge. That, so that gets all wrapped in this world word of range anxiety. People actually, the, the performance is fine. The, the vehicles are powerful. Uh, they're smooth. They're quiet. It's, it's simply down to a range issue. Now, the actual vehicles coming to market in the next couple of years have reasonable range, 250 to 300 miles plus. Charging times are coming down. Uh, with the neuter battery technology, infrastructure will improve. So it's all coming to life, but the, uh, the actual demand from consumers remains low single digits, and it remains a subsidized vehicle by the manufacturers. Um. To the point of the regulators driving this electrification on the part of the original equipment manufacturers and how that relates to the retailers like AutoNation, the CAFE standards, the fuel efficiency standards that were recently announced by the EPA, uh, 25 roughly miles to the gallon in 2017. The Trump administration, as you are aware, reviewing those, uh, those fuel efficiency standards for 2021 through 2025. Uh, how how are those looked at in the industry, this regulatory push for more fuel efficiency as the consumer demand continues in pickups and SUVs and those larger vehicles? The, the auto industry is all in on fuel efficiency, and that's everywhere in the world, not just the United States. And they see technologies where they can really – they have made strides and, and – and can continue to make strides. So um, that's done. Now, when you get down to specific countries, well, the United States now, the manufacturers face a very confused picture in that the federal regulators and the California regulators are not in agreement. And there's many other states that follow California regulators, and it is a nightmare for the industry to have uncertainty as to what the future looks like, and to have the possibility that there'll be two or three different set of regulations um, down to the state level. This, this is a nightmare scenario for, for the manufacturers. So that's the United States. China is mandating electric vehicles of every manufacturer, uh, not so much um, mainly for national security reasons. They, they, they want to generate electricity with their natural resources of coal and not import petroleum. And they need to clean up the very specific pollution they have in their cities, which is not CO2, that is uh, actual uh, uh, high emissions from internal combustion engines. Europe, the situation is that uh, the CO2 strategy was the diesel, the detour is a fiasco uh, around emissions with the whole Volkswagen scandal. And now the regulators are insisting on a solution, and the only solution 
on the horizon is electrification. So uh, electrification now is underway in the three major markets in the world, Europe, the United States, and China. There's no turning back. The development dollars are being spent. The vehicles are terrific. There'll be an adaption rate that, just put this in some sort of perspective, I would say, of everything sold in the United States by 2030, 10 to 15% will be fully electric. Compared to today. Fully electric, 1%. That's a significant change, but those advocates, as you know, will look at that and say it's only going to be one out of every 10 cars or one out of every seven cars at best. Yeah, this is going to take time. It's, it's, a, it's a revolution, um, but you put your, your finger on it earlier. Um, you can't leave the consumer out of this equation. And for the consumer, uh, this range anxiety, which is a combination of how far I can go on a given charge and how long it takes me to re- recharge is a, is a real factor. And as some electric vehicles are on the road and people realize that the weather can affect the range of your vehicle by 50%, depending how hot it is or how cold it is, well, you don't have to think about that with a tank of gas. It doesn't, it doesn't make any difference. So um, there's, it, it's, it's happening, but um, it's going to take time. As a South Floridian, does it concern you this move toward electrification of our personal vehicles when we can experience uh, storm outages of the grid for weeks at a time sometimes? Uh, that, that's not nice, Tom, to say. I mean, because the, because the fact of the matter is if the hurricane's coming and you live here in Miami, you can't get out of the state in your electric car, right? Because of the range. Because of the range. You're going to need a charge on the way, and there's not that many chargers, and uh, it takes too long, and boom, the hurricane got you. So there, there's a very good example. You're, you're, you're going to have to take your internal combustion engine to escape the storm. So there'll be a market still in 2030 for those that's what engines. I said. That's why I'm, I'm saying 10 to 15% will make all electric. That's significant from lone single digits today, but... Uh, everybody should take a deep breath. This, this is going to be a long journey. Are there good margins in the electric vehicle market for retailers? Uh, I would say they're going to be comparable to the internal uh, combustion engine, uh, which are not that very exciting anyway. Uh, we don't make a lot of money uh, on the sale of a vehicle. Uh, for the manufacturers, uh, the margins are much lower on electric vehicles. They're very expensive to, to build. The batteries are still very expensive. So if not the margin for a retailer like AutoNation on the sale, what about on the maintenance? Well, the complexity of vehicles is going up exponentially as all these technologies are going into the vehicles. Whether it's electrification, autonomous, connected car, all these other systems, once something happens, there's fewer and fewer that have the infrastructure to repair them. So in a way, we like complexity. That's what we're good at. So we have a huge customer care business today. We service over 4 million vehicles a year. We're, we're up to uh, 90 collision centers and uh, are building more. 
So that's a big part of our business and will continue to be. AutoNation's Mike Jackson. The company is scheduled to release its first quarter financial results on Friday. It will be the first quarterly report from the company in almost 20 years without Jackson as CEO. He stepped aside in March to become executive chairman. Pilar Ribe is our technical director. Katie Lepre, our engagement producer. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.